The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Continuing to consider a topical series of messages that have as the uniting theme the Word of God itself, its trustworthiness, its authority, the evidences that make us believe strongly that it is not merely the words of man about God, but God's own Word about Himself. And I read today a pretty familiar passage from Luke's Gospel. This is material that's unique to Luke as he is writing about Jesus on the day of resurrection, Easter day, in the late part of that day, a particular encounter that he, as risen Christ, had with two people who had already been interested in him and had been following him to some extent. Listen to God's word as I read Luke 24, beginning at verse 13. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in word and deed before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer all these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And then I just want to add, skipping down a few verses to 31, as he was leaving them, we read in verse 31, and their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. But they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road 
and opened to us the Scriptures. This is God's own holy word. Back in 2006, Hollywood gave us a picture that I guess you would have to call a blockbuster. It was a big moneymaker. It was very popular. A spellbinding movie, which I admit certainly drew you in and made you wonder what was happening as you watched it move along. And yet at the same time, it was also a picture that I deeply dislike and would oppose at the very core of what it stands for. Because it was a clever plot, this movie, The Da Vinci Code, which told a story that was a total fiction in at least two key areas, and in those areas, really, it blasphemed Christ and the Christian faith. The one area was its claim that Jesus and Mary Magdalene had a love relationship and that they bore a child. That, of course, is utterly false and blasphemous. But secondly, it asserted as if it was a well-known fact. And this is the hard part of it, not just that it asserted it, but it acted as if the whole Christian world had been trying to ignore this or cover this up for centuries, that the final collection of books to be included in the Bible was determined, they said, in a blatant church power play made at the Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D. when strong-armed people in the church, bishops and others, the Emperor Constantine was supposed to be in on it, who came and denounced any weaker books that might have been included and simply put the books they wanted in, and that was it as far as the Bible was concerned. Absolutely false. Absolutely false. The Council of Nicaea did not do anything like that. But the movie left millions of people thinking that indeed that's how we got our Bible and the books in it. Well, that's a vital question that we've not touched yet in asking this theme I've been studying with you, why trust the Bible? What about what we call the canon of the Bible? Now, that's canon, not with three ends, but with two. We're not talking about a big gun that shoots a great big iron ball. Canon means collection, the books that belong for various reasons, to the Holy Scriptures. There are, if you know the number, 39 of them in the Old Testament and 27 in the New for a total of 66 biblical books that are the recognized canon of Holy Scripture. And it's a great thing to be able to say, here they are, all 66 form for us, the inspired Word of God. Here is God speaking. But at the same time, you have to understand that we're also making that decision about each individual book. We're saying in the Gospel of Luke, here is God speaking. In the book of Revelation, here is God speaking. Genesis, Exodus, Isaiah, Psalms. Each of them needs to be able to stand and be recognized as a sacred oracle coming to us from God, the Word of God. And so people are right to ask the question, well, who decided what particular books would get into the Bible? Weren't there perhaps many other possible books that could have uh, gotten in, holy books, books with great inspiration, or stories of things from Old Testament ages or something that would have been very good? Were things left out? Were things left out possibly for wrong reasons? 
were things possibly just neglected. Maybe a book was hidden off to the side somewhere and and it just wasn't picked up with popularity. You see, there's nobody who would claim we got the Bible with its 66 books just dropped on us out of the sky. We know that just as God spoke through men his word by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, also he had to work and interact through men to help us come to decisions and concurrence over the centuries that would say, well, this book appears to be a genuine prophecy from God. This book appears to be clearly from one of the apostles of Jesus, whereas this one over here, and there even were books, by the way, that people claimed to be from an apostle, just so that they could think their book might get accepted somehow in a better way. They would claim, you know, this is the gospel according to Judas. That's an actual book that's out there. Uh, and, and think, all right, well, Judas, not the Judas Iscariot, but the other one was an apostle, so maybe somebody will think this book is good when it wasn't written by him at all. Well, there are people who really believe that this issue of canon or canonicity, how do we make these decisions of what belongs, is the Achilles heel of Christianity. And they will say, well, look, if the church and and groups of human beings made the decisions of what's there, then how can you claim it's a perfect book, a a book literally given to us from God? And there are others out there, I assure you, in the land of scholarship and what I would call pseudo-scholarship, people with genuine doctorates who are doing very false and deceitful things, who will promote so-called hidden gospels. You see this all the time today. Uh, History Book Club. I used to belong to it because I love history. Uh, The religious section of History Book Club. I'd get a catalog every so often. Here's all the books. And in the religious section, I would notice a particular author or two. Every book they would publish would be featured, and these are men who would feature and promote that the Bible we have is probably not the right Bible, that this gospel is a better gospel, I would look in vain to see evangelical authors represented in History Book Club. They just are not there. There's an agenda. There are people who would make their reputations by trying to tell us there's some kind of a scandal or a dark conspiracy at the heart of Christianity, and it affects even what books are in or not in our Bible. Well, today I'm looking at the easier part of this question, I guess, to deal with, easier in the sense that I'm dealing only with the Old Testament canon. And the story of the Old Testament canon is a less contentious story and a more unified and harmonious story. Next week, I hope to look at the New Testament part of it, and that is where there is indeed, or has been at least over the centuries, some amount of jousting and argument and We'll try to get our hands around that if we can. You can pray for me this week because that's a tough subject to reduce into one sermon. Well, we ought to love the Old Testament, and I hope our love for the Old Testament would increase if we started to call the Old Testament the Jesus Bible, the Bible of Jesus, for that's what it is. And you just stop and think a moment. Jesus never held in his hands while he walked on earth, that is, the, the gospel uh, according to John, or the book of Acts, or Romans, or First Timothy, 
or anything that is in the New Testament. Now, we'll talk next week about the fact that we believe he foresaw the New Testament coming and prepared the way for it and announced that it would come in a manner of speaking, but he never lived while it was present in the hands of his disciples on earth. So the Bible of Jesus, obviously, was the Old Testament. Was it the same Old Testament we have? Was it some smaller edition? Was it some larger edition? These are things that people want to know. We do know that Jesus' entire life was consumed by seeking to perfectly fulfill the Old Testament as he knew it. The law, the prophecy, the wisdom, the poetry. He saw himself, and we're going to see this, a couple things we look at this morning, as the capstone of the Old Testament. So that when we now read it, and if we read it correctly we find the Old Testament is full of Christ, predicting Christ, containing images and metaphors and what we call types that predict Christ as he would come and do the things that God had ordained for him to do. We find that Jesus Christ fully affirmed the 39 special books we have written in Hebrew of our Old Testament, God's infallible, breathed-out truth. We must listen to his testimony about these books, the testimony of a resurrected man, the only resurrected man who ever spoke about or respected certain books from God as what he called Scripture. If Jesus was wrong about this, then he were saying that he's mistaken Maybe we're saying he was naive. Worst of all, we'd be calling him a deliberate liar. So I want to ask my points in terms of questions today. And the first question I ask is this. What books formed the collection that was the Bible of Jesus? We introduced this word I mentioned a few minutes ago, the word canon. It means collection or it means it it has to do with like a rule or a measurement, something that measures up, something that meets the standards. And we would want to say, well, what are the standards? Well, the standards are that it is coming from someone recognized as a spiritual leader. In the New Testament, that's going to be the apostles. In the Old Testament, of course, it was primarily prophets or else a great leader of Israel like Moses something that came from these people and appears to authentically be the communication of God and not coming from some spurious source off to the side or somebody with an agenda of their own. The canon of our Bible with all of the 66 books, Old Testament and New Testament, was first put together in one list. Now, I remember how this surprised me when I first learned it. I suppose... I grew up thinking, all right, we had the Old Testament, then Jesus came, then the apostles wrote the New Testament, and the last of the New Testament books was written about 100 or so, 98 or 100 when John finished Revelation, and that was it. Then we knew what the books of the Bible were. Boom, we had the canon. No, not at all. And again, I don't want to get too far into the New Testament side of this, but I was very surprised to learn that the first time anyone of any authority, published a list of all 66 Old Testament and New books in one list was Athanasius, the bishop of Alexandria, Egypt, in 367 
A.D. Now, that does not mean that Athanasius decided the question. It simply means that Athanasius was the first one to put it down. What he was, in fact, saying is, here are the books that we all have acknowledged for some time now. So the question was decided before that. But, but there we have the list, 367. We'll try to struggle a little bit next week to say what was going on in those three centuries as they were trying to decide these things. There was some measure of, of discussion over the New Testament canon, as I'm saying, but it's important for you to know that in the case of the Old Testament, it's really quite a different thing. There's really a very broad and deep kind of unanimity and concurrence of understanding that formed over the Old Testament books. I think the reason for this, as I can deduce it, the best, I'm not saying it's a guess, I've studied the question, but as I best understand it is this, that the nation of Israel in the Old Testament age was a nation of Bible scholars, a nation of people who took the Scripture seriously, took the prophets seriously, took Moses' writings seriously, and they poured over it. Israel had rabbis of all levels, highly educated ones, and then those like Jesus, who was a more informal, you know, they called him rabbi, but he wasn't the the sort of college graduate, Ph.D. kind of rabbi. But Israel had rabbis all over the place who knew the Hebrew language, they knew the writings of the law, they debated and studied those things down to their most minute details. They didn't just study the forest, they studied the leaves on the trees and the veins of the leaves on the trees. So what you had, if you want to think of it this way, as any book of the Old Testament was being distributed and read and discussed, you had literally hundreds, hundreds at any given time and over the course of centuries, thousands of rabbis pouring over, comparing, contrasting, debating, applying, interpreting. Think of it like a great filtration system of some kind that you were trying to filter perhaps whether water going through it was polluted and you had dozens of layers of filters that the water had to work its way through. Any kind of pollutant or irritant or poison or anything like that would be surely filtered out by the many layers it had to work through. That's what you had in the rabbis over all those centuries. The Old Testament books were subject to many eyes, let's say, looking, eyes of people devoted to and valuing the Word of God. And so what we find and what appears to be pretty much a unanimous understanding is that by the time Jesus was born in the first century, the 39 books, the same 39 books that we have today, were really a consensus agreement by all Jewish Hebrew authorities that these indeed were the books of God that he had given. There really were not that many sideline, serious ideas that something else should be there or something that we had should not be there. Once in a while, things discussed like the fact that the book of Esther nowhere mentions the name of God. And people would say, well, why is a book like Esther? Well, go read Esther and find out what God was communicating there. He was communicating some important lessons for sure. So when we talk about, and when the Scripture talked about the law and the prophets, it was referring back to the whole Old Testament, the one that we know, the 39 books that we know. 
Now, somebody's sure to be asking in their mind right now, well, what about those volumes called the Apocrypha, the Apocryphal books? If you don't know, this is a collection of books, about a dozen or so. They have names like Tobit, Judith, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd Maccabees, Esdras, Enoch, Jubilees, several others. There's a whole collection, and it varies as to what names are in it. There are actually differences as to what belongs to the Apocrypha. And you may know the, the Roman Catholic Church binds the Apocryphal books into their Bible. The interesting thing is, if you speak to Roman Catholic Bible scholars, those who know these things would tell you pretty uniformly that they do not regard the Apocrypha at the same level as Scripture itself. I think that's a pretty much standing thing that is understood, that they would say, well, they're helpful, they're useful, but they're inferior to Genesis or Isaiah. Martin Luther spoke about the Apocrypha, analyzing what most people seem to think, that they're not that harmful, they're just not particularly edifying. They're books that contain myths and legends in some cases, uh, just different stories. Luther, I quote him here, he said, they are books which are not esteemed by most serious authorities as Holy Scripture, but may be useful to read. Now, if you want something more substantial as to why the Apocrypha is second rate and why it is not Scripture, I give you two facts that I think are impressive to know. First of all, nearly every one of the 39 Old Testament books that we recognize is quoted and alluded to and used as an authority by the writers of the New Testament. The New Testament is loaded with Old Testament references. If you have a reference Bible, look at the center column and you'll see a verse maybe in Ephesians and it will refer to Psalm 16 or something like that. All over the place, the Old Testament is referenced or alluded to by the New Testament. There is no place where a single apocryphal book is quoted as an authority on any doctrine by a New Testament writer. That's a fairly important fact. Another fact right alongside that is this. You may have heard of what we call the Dead Sea Scrolls. A shepherd boy in the 1940s, was, the story goes, was looking for a, a stray lamb and saw a cave opening, and he chunked a stone in there and heard a crash like glass or pottery breaking, and that led to a tremendous discovery, one of the great discoveries of biblical archaeology, because he had broken a jar that contained fragments of the Bible stored in caves by the Essenes, people who lived in a particular area near the Dead Sea who were Jewish monastic scholars living in a monastic community about the time of John the Baptist. They thought the Romans were going to overrun them, so they stored their sacred texts in these jars, and they were discovered and pulled out, and wow, what did they find there? Fragments of almost every single book of the Old Testament. In fact, the one book not represented was Esther. Every other Old Testament book was represented in the Dead Sea Scrolls. In other words, early Hebrew scholars were reading and using all those books. Guess how many of the apocryphal books were found among the Dead Sea Scrolls? Big fat zero. Not a single one. That seems to say right there that here are these things not being valued in the same way. So in summary, we have really a fairly unified story as to what 
the Bible of Jesus contained, the 39 books that we have now. We're seen as being unified, relating well to one another, and in one way giving us the voice of God for what he wanted to teach and make known about himself. Well, now let's ask this question, all right, if, if we have the collection in mind that it is the same 39 books we have, what attitude or did Jesus claim or have towards that Old Testament Scripture? There's several things we can say along this line. First of all, the fact that he regarded so many things that he would name and everything that he would name of, of a historical uh, situation or happening he took as real history in the way he talked about it. In other words, Jesus didn't say, well, oh, Adam, well, he was just sort of a metaphor for mankind, as you'll hear people say today. Oh, don't picture Adam and Eve as actual people walking around. That's just a literary metaphor, not Jesus. You read the references of Jesus to that subject, and he's talking about a man and a woman who walked on the earth. Similarly, Noah's Ark, Moses leading through the Red Sea, getting the Ten Commandments, manna in the wilderness, judgment from God on Sodom and Gomorrah, Jonah being in the belly of a fish. These were not myths or paradigms or metaphors for Jesus. They were history. He respected the Old Testament as God's truth in actual fact. Then remember when he was faced with temptation early in the ministry in the wilderness? We don't know that Satan came to him in an embodied form, but somehow in the mind of Jesus, tired and hungry and exhausted, he was tempted to take shortcuts. His own mind, Satan was working through his mind and trying to say, oh, you're the son of God, you can just do this. What did Jesus do? He had ammunition, and his ammunition was the word of God. The Word of God says, and he combated Satan by using Scripture, respecting Scripture as the voice of God. Then in a third evidence of Jesus' attitude to the Old Testament, you could turn, if you want, to Matthew five seventeen and 18, a text you'll recognize right away. Here in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus was talking, and he spoke about Scripture. He spoke about the Old Testament. It was important. He was facing off in controversy with with folks who were saying, well, that's not biblical. And Jesus said, well, the way you abuse Scripture, I guess you don't think it's biblical, but here's what it means. And he said, do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. That's the Old Testament. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all of it is accomplished. I don't know how many of you have ever studied Hebrew. Hardest undertaking I ever had to do in my whole life. I loved biblical Greek. I won't say I hated Hebrew. That's not a right way to say it, but I endured it. I'll say that. A language that's written backwards from the way we write, a language that has, you know, all consonants, no vowels, and where you put a little stroke, a thing the size of a little comma, it determines a whole different word. It's extremely difficult to learn Hebrew. I am in great admiration for people. I can use it by using reference resources of it. I can't sit down and read a Hebrew Bible as I can read a Greek New Testament. But Jesus is saying, 
not a little comma at the top of a letter or a little dot that makes one letter different from another will change or be taken away until I fulfill all that is written in the law and the prophets. What a thing to say. I tried to think of a way to picture that. And I came up with this. I don't know how helpful it really is. But I think Jesus is telling us that the Old Testament, all the books, the 39 books, you could think of as being like a gigantic ocean liner. I don't know how many versions of the Queen Mary they've had. I know there's been several, but let's say Queen Mary 5, if there hasn't been one of those, and that they would build in Liverpool, England. And here's this magnificent, huge ship that you could go from stem to stern and see luxurious, you know, staterooms and cabins, and you'd see the deck where the ship is controlled, and you go down to the engine room. And imagine that this is, this is the Old Testament. I know it's hard to compare a ship to the Old Testament. But Jesus has been appointed as the captain of the Queen Mary 5, and he's going to take it out to sea for its maiden voyage. So he goes on the ship and inspects it from top to bottom, makes sure that every turbine works, every part of the engine, every control system, the kitchen, every aspect of the ship is in perfect order. And then he, as captain, takes this ship out to sea on a voyage that God has ordained where he will gather as passengers every believing Jew and Gentile whom God ordains would make that voyage with him. Now, that's my, my fantasy comparison. But Jesus is saying, this is how I relate to the Old Testament. I fulfill it. I'm the captain of that ship. And God will work in me to bring every last thing to accomplishment that he has intended through the law and the prophets of the Old Testament. Another parallel passage quickly to, to show how Jesus regards the Old Testament is in John 10, 34 to 36. It's just a little phrase. It's interesting how the phrase occurs, but it's very important. It's where Jesus is contending with the Pharisees, and he had said he was the Son of God, and he spoke for God and so on, and they came after him full force. Oh, you're not, you're saying you're God. We're going to kill you. We're going to stone you. They were ready to. And Jesus says, well, this is simply what the Scripture says. And here he gives this phrase in John ten thirty four and following, Scripture cannot be broken. He says this is true because the, the, the sayings of God are one piece of fabric. You can't tear them apart. God has said this would be true. I'm the embodiment of it. God's word cannot be broken. So all of this is telling us that Jesus had the utmost high respect for the same 39 books that we call the Old Testament, calling it the Law and the Prophets, the Scriptures. It was to him the Word of God, and he was its fulfillment. Now, quickly and thirdly today, you're, you're saying, I'm sensing something wrong here. Pastor Rogers started this out reading Luke 24, 26, and, and 27 as key verses, and he hasn't even mentioned it. You're right. I saved the text for the last point, and I come to it here to ask this. What ultimate purpose did Jesus assign to the Old Testament? What was the purpose of it all? Well, I love Luke 24. I don't know about you, but 
you know, if I turn myself free on an Easter Sunday and say, what will I preach on? If I would decide to preach on Luke 24, it's one of my favorite things because it's kind of the aftermath. It looks back on the resurrection to see these two doubting, confused, sort of sad disciples coming alive and believing through the witness of Jesus what actually happened. They said, they told him, you know, are you the only man that doesn't know these things? You have to ask us about this. Uh, Well, the tomb was empty, but we didn't see him. They were saying, we don't really know what happened. We don't understand this resurrection thing. Did he really rise? We don't know. We're sad. We're confused. And I love the way Jesus treats them. He's so kind with them. Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe. I don't think he said that in a harsh tone. Slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter his glory? And then look at this. Beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted to them in all of the Scripture, the whole span of that Old Testament, things concerning himself. And when he had departed, look at how they looked at each other and said, didn't our hearts burn inside of us as he opened to us the Scripture? You see, instead of being the only person who did not know what was going on in Jerusalem, Jesus, the resurrected Christ, was the only person who did know. He was the only one who really knew what was going on. And what was really going on was the fulfillment of all that God had planned in his Scriptures from time immemorial. It was the ultimate meaning of the Hebrew Old Testament come true in the person and work of Christ spread across every page practically of the Old Testament because Jesus was the seed of the woman promised in Genesis 3.15 whose heel would be bruised by Satan. He was the Passover lamb of Exodus 12. He was the blood sacrifice required in Leviticus 16. He was the Numbers 21 bronze serpent lifted up in the wilderness for healing. He was the Ark of the Covenant. He was the high priest. He was the prophet who would replace Moses. He was the one Isaiah said would be mocked and and abused and rejected. He was the one who Psalm 22 said would die a God-forsaken and thirsty and lonely death. Don't you see? If I told you that the next sermon series was going to be me setting out to show you where is Christ in all of the Old Testament, I'd have to be telling you something that would happen over at least 10 years and 500 sermons. I'm not going to be preaching here 10 years from now. I can absolutely assure you of that. I won't have a chance to preach 500 sermons about Christ in the Old Testament, but I know if I did, I wouldn't be half done showing you everything that the Old Testament Scriptures show to display Christ. The Old Testament isn't just about Israel. People say, oh, that's all about Israel. I'm not interested in Israel. I'm afraid you've got it wrong. The Old Testament is about Jesus. And we can say what Augustine said when he talked about the two Testaments, that the new is in the old concealed and the old is in the new revealed. God's Word is unified in that way. Let me close with the word from Luke 16, another familiar place in Luke. The rich man and Lazarus, remember them? The rich man was a multi-billionaire in our standards. 
He drove his Rolls Royce quietly purring out the gate with his uniformed chauffeur. He never had to look through the smoke-tinted windows to see the half-naked beggar laying at his gate who just wished that somebody, the cook from the rich man's kitchen, would possibly throw the garbage in his direction. It seemed like it never happened. Well, you know that parable. Jesus told it. The rich man died and went to hell to make it all short and succinct. And he was in hell. And he was suffering. And he was crying out. And he cried out, Jesus said to Abraham, and said, Abraham, my brothers are on earth. Send them a message so they don't have to suffer as I have done for my sins. And Abraham said, no, they don't need anybody. Said, oh, yes, they do. No, Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear that. Oh, but the rich man said, no, no, that's not enough. Send them somebody from the dead. That will wake them up. That will make them listen. I'm sure it will. And in that parable, which is only a parable, of course, he was told that if they will not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone rises from the dead. Well, Was that parable fulfilled? Someone rose from the dead. Someone bore testimony to the truthfulness and the power of what all of the Old Testament contains. The Old Testament is about putting total faith and trust in Jesus Christ as the Lord of the Scriptures, the Lord of history, the Lord of heaven and earth. And the question to us is simply this. Will you receive the testimony of a resurrected man about the Word of God. I pray you will. Father, thank you for the gift of the Old Testament. We have not properly valued it. We have said, oh, let me please just read the nice Gospel of Matthew. Oh, give me the book of Acts or Romans or Ephesians, all wonderful. Thank you for those gifts too. But thank you, Father, for the power of your Scripture, that Jesus could, by using only the Old Testament, illustrate to two disciples on that Emmaus road what the whole thing was all about. Make us people of your book in a deeper way. Draw us into it. Let us ask questions of it, pray over it, consider it, interpret it correctly, apply it. Let us use your word so that we might see you revealed in it and your precious Son. We ask this in his name. Amen.